Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. Uh, we live in a world and an era of increasing cultural violence and political division. This week's news alone uh, is just a, it gives us a picture, a foretaste, I think, of what the future um, may hold as the House has begun uh, in, an impeachment inquiry against uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, broader in the culture, we see almost weekly uh, school shootings and, and shootings in synagogues and, and churches. We live in an era that seems to be um, increasingly violent and full of uh, uh, cultural division. And and so uh, to talk about this, uh, this era, to talk about uh, the role of civility, if it has a role anymore in the public square, uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. Paul Miller. He is a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's a contributing editor here at Providence, a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Paul has just authored uh, with the ERLC a new study a report um, entitled Faith and a Healthy Democracy, and that's what we're here to talk about. So, Paul, uh, welcome to the Provcast. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Drew. So uh, this report is a uh, it's in part a uh, a series of interviews that you conducted correct with um, with evangelicals and people of faith, but it's also a, a poll um, that, that looks at the role of civility in uh, the public square. That looks at the um, diminishing presence of civility, uh, and really how maybe Christians engage or are engaging in culture. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what led you to the report and to maybe tease the report out a little bit of some of the details details that you found. Yeah, thanks. So um, this report started life uh, over a year ago when the Fetzer Institute uh, commissioned the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, or established a relationship with them to carry out this report on civility and the role of evangelicals in the public square. The Fetzer Institute is keenly interested in uh, what it takes to sustain a healthy democracy using resources of faith. And they're not, a, they're not a Christian organization, but they recognize the role that religious people can play in supporting a healthy public square. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, of course, is interested in religious liberty and in a healthy public square and in uh, the health of American democracy. So they asked me to lead this research project, and I had a, a team of researchers to help with this. By no means was this my own uh, solo work. Um, and we decided to uh, tackle this question by interviewing uh, evangelical leaders. We interviewed about 50 evangelical leaders, and uh, there's a long list of those uh, folks who participated. And we also commissioned, as you mentioned, a proprietary poll from LifeWay Research to ask uh, evangelicals nationwide their attitudes about democracy, about compromise, about particular issues like, uh, like abortion and racial uh, relations and other issues. And uh, we put it all together, along with some historical research, in this report about uh, faith and healthy democracy, which you can find on the Ethics and Religious Liberties uh, website uh, today. And this report goes into some detail on what we found, what we heard from our interviewees, and what the results of the poll were. So the, one of the main kind of uh, questions that I wanted to ask you, and having read the report, I read it uh, kind of earlier this summer, I had an opportunity to spend some time with you and the URLC up on Capitol Hill, where we met with uh, a number of, of leaders and had some um, discussions talking about kind of civility in, in politics. And if you spend any time in Washington, D.C., or if you watch the news at all, you might think um, that there is no such thing as, as civility, civility in politics. So I'll, I'll put, kind of put the question to you, uh, kind of based out of uh, the feedback that you received, is civility dead in America? I mean, is, is there such a thing or a, as kind of civility in the public square? 
So that was one of the first questions we asked our interviewees, and their response was profoundly negative. Uh, there's a long list of adjectives they use to describe uh, the state of civility in the public square today. Um, some of my favorites, uh, the most common was toxic. They all said that the public square today was toxic, which is something that is poisonous and actively unhealthy to be around. That's how they thought of politics. But they also described our public square as demoralizing, dispiriting, emotionally exhausting. Somebody said it was a frenzy of political rage. It was inflammatory, incendiary, low, nasty, pathetic, phobic. And uh, my favorites were um, someone described our public square as uh, marked by circumambulatory imbecility. <laughs> and, uh, of course, many people so said that was, it was obvious, a, that was obviously a professor, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it was a seminary professor. Right. And, uh, and many people said it was, quote, a dumpster fire. Um, however, I do want to mention there were some of our interviewees were, were, were keen to highlight where they saw civility still alive. They saw civility still alive at the local level as opposed to the national level. They saw civility alive in face-to-face -face relationships, offline, off of Twitter. <laughs> um, and they saw civility uh, alive in, um, uh, yeah, in these face-to-face -face relationships and in, in, in institutions of civil society. So it seems that a civil public engagement is still possible uh, when we're talking about local and face-to-face -face and offline. How big was the disconnect that you saw between uh, people who were, let's say, obsessed with social media and involved uh, and, and online, whether it's a Twitter or a Facebook, and maybe people who had kind of one-to-one uh, -one interactions? Like when we had meetings on Capitol Hill and um, we were sitting there listening to various uh, congressmen and senators uh, come in and they, they were all collegial. They all were kind. They were kind to one another. They were affable uh, towards one another. And yet, if you probably one or you know went out one or two rings into their kind of media orbits and into their kind of social media feeds oftentimes it, it gets increasingly you know caustic the further out you go so I mean yeah. how big is that disconnect that you see kind of between the, the personal reality and the social media kind of image well so the it's hard to measure that but I will say that it was uh, something that many of our interviewees specifically highlighted as a concern of theirs they we believe fairly strongly that social media has been pretty harmful for our public dialogue. I want to say right off the bat, we recognize there are some beneficial things that social media brings. Social media is an instantaneous publishing platform. It is access to media for those who do not have access to traditional media. So it can amplify disenfranchised voices. And that's the good thing about social media. However, on balance, it seems to bring more harm than good because on the whole, many of us are looking to social media as a substitute for our real face-to-face -face human communities. We surround ourselves with these uh, artificial, constructed, online tribal communities, echo chambers, informational echo chambers, where we only engage with people we already agree with, and we engage with them to hear our beliefs echoed back to us without any challenge, only with affirmation and validation. When we do that, we we whip ourselves up into these, these um, uh, self-righteous uh, certainty and, and, and rage against the other side. That's what these uh, social media bubbles do to us. And uh, so we're very concerned about what uh, this means for our public discourse. Uh, does that answer your question, Drew? Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's extremely helpful. It brings up the idea of kind of being siloed and, yeah. uh, you know, having your own kind of world that you live in and you kind of exist in. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit in that um, both on the right and the left, 
um, there is kind of this this mantra that comes up that this is really the worst that it's ever been, right? You can find people on the left who say that um, this is the worst of times, that uh, this Amer America has never been worse, it's never been less civil, that you've got the, the rampant uh, oppression of the patriarchy, you've got corporations running amok, you've got religion uh, in power that's suppressing people's uh, personal individual rights. Then you have people on the right, uh, ideologically, who say, hey, this is this is the worst of times. Uh, it's secularism run amok. There's uh, sexual liberation everywhere. There's loss of a moral culture ab abroad. Um, and each one is existing in its own little bubble, kind of feeding itself, fe feeding this kind of uh, apocalyptic uh, egotism um, that says this is literally the worst it's ever been in, in America. Um, with some of the people that you talked about, and I read some of the responses, and so I, I kind of would be interested in your own um, uh, impressions as well, as, as a historian and one who studied American history is, I mean, is this, is that a fair assumption from either the right or the left that this is the worst of times? If we look back in the 1960s, let's say 1968 and 1969, where we have riots and, and uh, cities on fire and you have the Vietnam War, the Americans extremely divided. Um, you look at the 1850s before the yeah. Civil War, you look at uh, Reconstruction, 1870s, uh, after the Civil War, Jim Crow, like talk, uh, give us some, maybe some historical perspective and maybe what did you hear from some of the respondents yeah. regarding, you know, um, how they feel about this era in American history? Yeah. So let's just go ahead and grant that the 1860s were probably the worst part of American history, right? right. <laughs> when Americans were actually taking up arms against each other. And um, we're not there, despite what the president tweeted just this morning. He made the veiled comment about civil war again. You know, we're not there. And, and I don't think we're going to get there. Um, praise, praise the Lord for that. There are other eras of American history that were pretty bad. The 1790s actually were very bad in terms of partisanship. The new nation was barely standing on its own two feet. And there was a lot of fractiousness about how to interpret the brand new constitution. And it was not clear that the nation would survive those early partisan disputes. Um, we did hear from our interviewees many comparisons between today and the 1960s. And uh, there's, um, I think that's pretty fair. The 1960s were very bitter, very partisan, and there's a lot of recrimination. What was different is that in the 1960s, there was actually a lot more violence. There was a lot more crime, but there was also a lot more domestic terrorism. Uh, and there was the draft and there was the Vietnam War and there was returning refugee, uh, returning uh, soldiers, veterans, um, hundreds of thousands, millions of veterans coming back. Um, and uh, it made for a, a, a volatile mix in the 1960s on into the early 1970s. And I think Americans today, younger Americans, just simply have no awareness, no knowledge that domestic terrorism was a fairly large problem back then. You had left-wing groups like the Weatherman Underground, the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, that, uh, and, and other groups uh, that were a real problem. And of course, you had the KKK as a right-wing terrorist group. So there was a lot of violence back in the 1960s and 70s, bombings and assassinations uh, that uh, we just don't have today. Praise the Lord for that. So today is not that bad. What, what is different about today, I think, and here's, I'm, I'm kind of speaking for myself and speculating a little bit. I think the uh, increase in globalization, technology, and, and communications, and yes, social media has changed our informational environment in truly unprecedented ways, in, in such that Americans are losing faith in the ability to know what truth is, and that makes us distrust ourselves, it distrust our news, distrust each other, and certainly distrust the other side. And I wonder if the depth of distrust in the possibility of truth is truly unprecedented in American history. And if, tr if so, that is deeply worrying. 
I don't know if that means violence is around the corner. It does mean that the workings of our democracy, which depend upon knowable facts, um, are, are fairly precarious right now. So what are one of the ways that um, uh, you found and, and your team of researchers found maybe to a, a path back towards civility? Um, and I, I say that, and I want to take a little brief kind of caveat maybe before you answer uh, that into, um, you know, there are people who kind of openly decry um, uh, the word civility, that they would say that, look, this isn't a civil time, the stakes are high, uh, you've got a number of people, people that we've written about and people that we are engaging with um, uh, as, as Providence, as a, as a community, talking about nationalism, talking kind of about the new right, the new conservatism out there that says uh, guys like Sorab Amari or whatnot that say we're in a culture war, we're at enmity with the other side and this other side, this liberal side, uh, whether it's you know drag queen story hours or whomever needs to be utterly defeated uh, for the common good and really um, look, they, these individuals, this new right looks to politicians like President Trump as kind of saying, look, he's not civil. He's not a pastor. We didn't elect a pastor. We need someone who's disruptive, who, you know, if they need to break some bones to get the, the common work, uh, common good work done, uh, so be it. Um, so with that, with that kind of voice in our own camp, our own kind of conservative camp, what path is there to yeah. civility? Like, how do you make the argument then in this uh, kind of environment, even on our own side? Let's leave secularism uh, out. Let's leave the leftist uh, liberal kind of side out. Let's just talk about conservatism in general. I mean, how do we kind of yeah. make the case to say, hey, it, it is right and good that we go about fighting the cultural fight that we need to, but we do so in a way that that uh, is civil? So uh, boy, there's a lot there, and I, I could talk forever on this. Um, the, <laughs> the first line of the report after the introduction is, is, is civility is not the most important virtue in public life. Justice has a good claim to that, right? So I, I recognize that civility is not the highest good, and we're not saying that it is. Many of our interviewees, particularly non-white interviewees, pointed out to us that um, civility can be a uh, a card that white people play to stifle marginalized voices. Um, and that sometimes marginalized voices have to be a little uncivil to be heard at all. Uh, and uh, the civil rights movement was, uh, for example, uh, the civil rights movement it, it, it did civil disobedience, right? Did things that were um, disturbing to the majority just so they could dramatize the injustice that they were suffering. And that, I think, is entirely justified and appropriate uh, in some conditions. But let me draw a distinction between the civil rights movement and what Sorbamari is calling for. The civil rights movement called for civil disobedience. And the leader of that movement was a pastor. And he did exemplify a gentlemanliness and a dignity. And when he led that movement, I'm talking about Martin Luther King Jr., he called for the urgency of the now and he called for civil disobedience, but he also called, so certainly not for violence. And um, he, he exemplified a certain way of undertaking that kind of politics that I don't see coming from the so-called the new right or the new nationalism. When the new right, or what do you want to call them, the, the nationalists, when they call for uncivil politics, it often sounds to me like they're just calling for unkindness, incivility, and meanness as virtues in and of themselves. They're not calling for um, civil disobedience. They're not calling for that kind of principled opposition to some unjust policy. They're just calling for brawler's tactics in the public square for its own sake. And I do not think that that is productive. Nor do I think it's uh, realistic when uh, Amari and the others 
call for defeating the other side and imposing a new vision of the of the good on the public square, which is almost exactly a quote from Amari's work. When they call for that, I think that's wildly unrealistic. There's no prospects that we, however you define we, that we are going to defeat the other side of the culture war and impose our solution on them. That's unrealistic. It's counterproductive because it will provoke a backlash. Um, it goes against our own values by by championing uh, incivility, unkindness, un a lack of graciousness. And frankly, uh, it seems to me to commit the sin of gaining the world to lose our soul, uh, losing our soul to, to gain the whole world. I, I, I don't understand how that could be a justifiable way of engaging in a Christian public witness in the public square. So I, I do disagree with those who champion incivility as some kind of new virtue in the environment we're in. I don't think that's, that's true at all. Is there is there some kind of tie or connection that you could see? And let's um, we'll let's put on our you know, theologian hats, maybe, or kind of a, our Christian um, uh, intellectualism uh, hats. Is there is there a um, a connection that you see between kind of civility and the idea of meekness? In that uh, to be civil is not to be weak or not to be um, you know uh, necessarily a pushover um, any more than. Um, uh, to be meek is to to be weak. That there's there is a way to be strong. That there's a way to be present and truthful, and uh, articulate a virtue and do so with with strength, and in a way that is it's countercultural. It is the yeah. the world is a world as, as Scripture tells us, full of darkness. Uh, that we there is an element we are to be light in that darkness. There is to be something that is distinct and different among Christians. And I'm I'm backing this away from kind of maybe the national conversation conversation, retreating into our own camp, right, of, of yeah. Christendom. Um, but and to the extent to which this is a um, an intra, um, uh, you know, Christian, intra-faith discussion and talking about uh, um, how Christians and evangelicals and conservatives kind of engage in the culture, um, is is civility tied to meekness? Is there is there a link there? And it wouldn't there be a good argument then as this is a, a biblical virtue that isn't yeah. in any way weak uh, because Christ himself uh, was was meek. Uh, Christ himself was civil, um, even to the point of, um, yes, you know, being crucified. But he was um, uh, if we are to emulate Christ and, and to do that in the culture as Christians, um, is there is there a connection there? So you've used the word meekness. Um, I'll quote from Bruce Ashford, who wrote in his book, uh, One Nation Under God. He said, um, the essence of civility is uh, not spinelessness, but self-control, self-control. And that is what, how he identified the sort of the core of what it means to be civil. It's OK to disagree with people. And in fact, we ought to disagree vigorously, strongly with firmness when the other side says something wrong, untruthful, or unjust, when they advocate for unjust policies, we should be strident and unapologetic about our expressing our disagreement. It's one of my the more frustrating things when people say, well, Donald Trump's a fighter. Uh, not really, because he does not actually articulate very clearly what we're fighting for or what the uh, elements of disagreement are with the other side. He's just kind of mean and insulting. So for a fighter, I think we need somebody who can articulate well what we're fighting for, what we're fighting against. And to do so with self-control and with gracious words. And that is what it means to be civil. And I think it's actually more productive in the long run to do that. So you, you asked for, okay. you asked for uh, us to put our, our, uh, our sort of Christian hats on. And I would sure. just say um, uh, that there, 
sorry, I thought I had the verse, but I don't have it. Somewhere, I think in the book of Colossians, Paul says, you know, let your words always be full of grace. Uh, I might be slightly misquoting that, but there's, you read the entire book of Proverbs and it commends um, being slow to anger and slow to speak and being self-controlled, being wise and careful with your words. Uh, I think as Christians, we ought to recognize a, we are conscience bound. We are biblically bound to be people of gracious words, to be careful with our speech even as we disagree stridently and vigorously with those who advocate for injustice. So as far as engaging in the um, civilly, kind of in, in common culture, one of the statistics that I found really fascinating in the report is is about the common culture itself. And it kind of raises the question is like, do we share in uh, anything in common kind of with uh, people uh, around us? 70% of the uh, respondents on this in the survey said that they did not participate in any non-religious kind of civic activities. What kind of gets to uh, this point of like outside of these silos, outside of these little camps that we exist in, whether our church or synagogue or, or mosque or, or whatever, religious activities, um, in terms of broader based kind of civic uh, activities, uh, the majority of us, the majority of people aren't participating in anything. So I mean, what, what is it that we share in common? If we're going to have a, a lingua franca, kind of a common language uh, that we want to kind of be civil, where, where are the areas in, in society that we're gathering around that we hold in common that we can um, dialogue about? What do you see? What did yeah. you find the report? So um, I fear that the thing that truly does bind us together uh, right now as Americans is our pop culture. I say I fear that because that's no certain or sure remedy for national unity. And you can't. You can't rest national unity on that. But think about it. If you meet a stranger and you're trying to strike up a small talk um, with them and you're on a, a train or something like that, you're going to end up talking about either sports or TV or, or movies. That's what effectively does bind us together. We all recreate the same way, where we indulge in the same entertainment. And it um, fills me with sorrow that that's the thing that does effectively bind us together, because again, it's not enough, and it will not hold a country together. I would love to see, this is again, just speaking for myself here, I think that it would be uh, entirely good for us to recultivate a sense of our shared history. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis said something about how uh, a love for your country means um, loving its past, the best part of your past, and desiring to be a part of its future, uh, something to that effect. And uh, I think that's true. I think that American history should tell us who we are as a people. Of course, it's filled with good things and bad things, but we need to have a common understanding of what those things are. And we should, in common, celebrate the good things. And I think in common, we should also aspire to bring those good things into the future. That's what ought to bind us together. And it's just not doing that right now. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, civility within the domestic sphere. I want to move out a little bit into the global environment and, um, uh, you know, America's place in the world. And, uh, you know, there's often uh, throughout American history in the 20th century, this kind of the idea of the ugly American. Americans are kind of uh, head out into the world and are oftentimes kind of uh, uncivil or oftentimes kind of uh, maybe ham fisted in the way that they um, engage uh, with people from other cultures. Uh, and then if you look at our own policy, our own uh, uh, foreign affairs. Uh, there's um, you know, in, in a number of areas that we head into that can be uh, uh, difficult and, and wars that we either instigate or get uh, dragged into. And uh, yeah, there's always a lot of criticism for America uh, on the on the world stage. And yet we are kind of a global leader. And up until I would say the the presidencies of Barack Obama and um, 
Donald Trump, there is there's been this this global uh, order that has been largely uh, orchestrated and instrumented uh, and and uh, organized by the United States, and um, uh, it's been done so on the on through diplomacy, through um, uh, measured responses, through um, uh, the idea of kind of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War and and diplomatic multilateral organizations. So all of this kind of this civil structure, which has begun to kind of unravel a little bit. And there is um, uh, defenders of Donald Trump who say, here he is again, he is the disruptor. No, he's not civil. He attacks our allies. He attacks everybody just about at some point. Um, And you know, what is the role of that kind of civility on the global stage? Because we are dealing with bad actors oftentimes. We're yeah. dealing with people who, you know, you can be civil up to a point, uh, but civility won't stop Hitler from, you know, invading uh, Poland or it won't stop uh, Saddam Hussein from invading Kuwait. I mean, like at some point, uh, civility has to take a backseat to the 101st Airborne, I- I'm assuming. So, um, how do you see this this dialogue about civility going from the domestic sphere into, let's say, foreign affairs? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And and again, uh, I can always quote the report here um, about how civility is not the highest virtue that justice is. I even say uh, war is uncivil, but sometimes necessary and sometimes just. Um, so you're right. At some point, there's you you sort of draw a line and you understand that uh, civility is no longer the governing virtue of our political discussions. Uh, abroad. Um, I, the liberal international order that has taken root since uh, since the Second World War, I think is on balance been a good thing. I know people are, uh, a, lot, a lot of people are arguing about that right now. I, I'm on the side that says I think it's on balance been a good thing and we should keep it and we should continue to invest in it because it's the, it's the outer perimeter of American security. It's an engine of American prosperity and it's a tool of American influence. So if you want to put America first, then then you should continue to be a globalist and invest in the liberal order because it's a good thing. Uh, I, again, I understand people do disagree about that. Um, to the extent that that's true, I think we absolutely need to cultivate civility amongst our allies, uh, amongst uh, NATO, again, amongst uh, other like-minded countries that share similar values with us um, in East Asia, like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so there's a collection of like-minded countries, the free world order. Uh, and we are, we are and have been the, the leader of the free world. And yes, we should cultivate some sense of civility amongst our allies. Um, but just as I said, that we should be unapologetic about expressing disagreement with our political opponents at home. The same is true, even more true, when we talk about our rivals and, and our enemies abroad. Um, we, we have no real obligation to pull our punches or to uh, soft pedal our disagreements with Russia, with China, with Iran, with North Korea, um, and certainly not with anybody we're in a shooting war with, not with the Taliban, not with Al-Qaeda. And so there's a a boundary line within which civility is possible and necessary, and outside that boundary line, uh, it is no longer necessary and no longer helpful. I, I, let me anticipate the objection. I know exactly what the nationalists will say. They'll say we we need to import that wartime mentality and use it against the progressive left here at home. And what I have to say to that is um, you don't really understand what war actually means. I have I have been to war. I, I'm a veteran of the United States Army. I served in Afghanistan. I know what a war actually is. And these people on the right, the nationalists, they generally don't. And for them to import the rhetoric of war and say that we need to adopt the attitude of war towards our domestic political opponents is repugnant. It's irresponsible. And I think it's unethical. 
Do you think, as a very civil way of um, uh, <laughs> uttering your uh, objection yeah. there, that I appreciate? I think, um, I mean, do you find um, to even just talk about that that characterization of importing this this kind of uh, international warfare language into kind of the domestic space and talking about domestic politics? Um, that there is there is an, a lot of cover that is given to people on social media, right? That there's this yeah. distance, there's this yeah. anonymity. A, a tweet is, you know, 280 characters. A Facebook post is, you know, maybe just a few sentences. It's kind of thrown out there and there's some distance. If somebody disagrees with you, you can block them, you can mute them. There are a number, you know, you can isolate yourself from even knowing that their criticism exists. And it gives you some, some cover uh, to make kind of grandiose statements like that that are divorced from reality. And so, so much of that is happening all the time. And so much of that is is kind of being thrown out there with not a lot of um, accountability. Uh, do you find that that is, that is uh, um, you know, one of the factors that exacerbates this, this incivility is the ability to just throw stuff out there without ever really having to explain it or being held accountable for what you are um uh, you know, throwing out. Yes. Um, I think anonymity, uh, has helped shield internet. Anonymity has helped shield people from the consequences of their rhetoric. Um, I, would, I do want to recognize the positive side of that internet. Anonymity helps dissidents protest their authoritarian governments around the world. So I would, I want to kind of protect the possibility of that, but those who are indulging in anonymity just so they can be mean or snarky on Twitter is obviously irresponsible. I also want to acknowledge there are plenty of blue check marks on Twitter who are equally uncivil and irresponsible right. in their rhetoric. Um, so anonymity isn't the only variable that causes people to be uncivil, but it can be unhelpful when you're in a democratic society and you're using anonymity as a shield for your snark. Yeah. Well, I guess it's not even anonymity. It would just be distance. You know that there's a certain yeah. like they don't they don't have to stare you in the face and make a, an argument about that as a, as a veteran. They can just say throw something up on Twitter, blue check mark or not. Yeah. Um, and the you know that that level of distance kind of uh, gives them gives them some cover. So about that though, let's real quick kind of talk about uh, you. Do, you have senators like Senator Josh Hawley. Uh, who is decrying this the very thing that we're talking about the the kind of the, the various biases that exist on social media whether on Facebook or on Twitter and how there are voices out there that are highly influential but there's very little accountability and so you you have people like him who are saying look we need some accountability we need to basically uh, create censorship boards for Twitter for social media for Facebook that would attempt to um, uh, alleviate some of this unfairness that even you and I are talking about right now. I hear that and it raises all kinds of alarm bells uh, in in my head. But I mean, based off of even your report, I mean, did you find that type of proposal? Do you think that that uh, what Hawley and others kind of propose in terms of censoring Facebook or using the government as some kind of apparatus to tap down on negative social media? Uh, do you think that that your respondents uh, in this study uh, that you did with the RLC uh, would be uh, amenable to that? Do you think that that's something that's uh, – there's an audience out there for that? So in the report in particular, we focused our recommendations on individuals and on churches. And we steered clear a little bit of public policy, of, of recommending public policy to enhance civility because this report is part of a long-term project on civility. We think maybe in uh, another couple of years – after we do more sort of conferences, events, panels, um, and other research, 
we might venture into uh, more public policy recommendations. For now, we focus our recommendations on, again, individuals, families, and churches on how we can train ourselves personally for greater civility. Um, if you're asking my opinion about, you know, using Facebook or, or getting the government involved to <laughs> sponsor civility, I'll probably express my disagreement with that. Uh, I think uh, the less the government does to police their speech, the better. That's just my own uh, my own view, um, and uh, I don't trust Facebook either uh, with that with that task. I do think that platforms like Twitter have a very difficult uh, task here. They either are not responsible for the content on their platforms, in which case it should be kind of a wild west if anything goes, or it sh they should acknowledge that they are responsible, in which case they are a publisher, and and then they should they should uh, have a they should be much more involved in policing the speech on their platforms. Right now, with Twitter as an example, it's very unclear what the Twitter policy actually is. What is it? What you're allowed to say? What you're not allowed to say? And when they decide to take action and ban a person or delete an account or deactivate an account, it's unclear what standards they're using. And it seems often uh, to be, a, a, you know, just a sort of a partisan bias to silence this voice or that voice. And it's a little uncomfortable. I kind of wish they would pick one or the other. Let's just go with pure libertarian anarchy. Anything goes. Wild West out there. Or own up to being a publisher on your platform and start policing a lot more than you already do. And if I were doing this, I think I'd probably just ban anonymous accounts. I, honestly, I, I think that would go a long way to deleting the trolls, the the Russian bots, and the the white nationalists out there. I think that would really help uh, the state of Twitter, for example. Right, the anonymous white nationalists. I guess the ones the ones yeah. with uh, blue check marks. I guess would continue uh, to uh, spread their spread their poison. Okay, as, as we kind of wrap up and close. Um, uh, what's, you know, you said you broke down the recommendations in terms of individuals and churches. Let's look at just kind of maybe individuals right now. What, uh, as you know, people listening to this, you know, podcast who are, uh, concerned with the state of the culture, uh, but also want to engage and not just completely forego their witness and want to be civil and they want to do so in a, a you know, helpful kind of way. What are some of the ways that you guys uh, recommended that, um, uh, Christians and just people of faith and people yeah. who care about, uh, uh America? how they should go about engaging. Like what, are, what are two or three things that they should do uh, that they could take away that could um, uh, change their engagement in the culture for the better? Let me, let me mention a few. One of them that we mentioned is um, trying to um, uh, cultivate a habit of getting your news from print sources instead of uh, visual sources. So instead of the TV or YouTube, um, try an actual newspaper or a magazine or the online equivalent of that. We, we, a lot of our interviewees suggested that the visual media are more emotional, the print media are more cerebral. And when you're forced to think as you read, it will probably turn down the temperature of your engagement and cause you to think more and be more critical in what you're consuming, what kind of news you're consuming, news and opinion. So more print, less visual. That's just one very simple thing. Um, another idea that we uh, considered is, uh, this is going to sound so cliched and so uh, politically correct, but it's very true. If you seek out difference, if you seek out people who are different than you are, the polling results, LifeWay did a civility index, and they found a very strong correlation. People who have friends of a different religion, different ethnicity, different political party, they tend to be more civil. When we expose ourselves to difference, um, it tends to challenge us to grow our empathy and grow our hearts and grow our understanding for others who are not like ourselves. So seek out difference. Find and make friends with people who aren't like you, who do not fit your exact demographic category. And that's a good thing, uh, even if it is a cliche. 
Um, last thing I'll mention on the individual level, try not to have an opinion about everything. Every single day, you can go and find something to be outraged about. You can find a news report about something happening across the world that sounds horrible, um, and you can be outraged about it, and it will ruin your day, and you can retweet it and ruin somebody else's day. So try not to do that. Try not to feel the burden of having an opinion or declaring your stance to the world on every single issue or crisis or controversy of the day. You might just try tuning out quite a lot of that stuff because it doesn't actually affect your life. Consider focusing on local things, things that actually affect you, your family, your neighborhood, uh, your school. Um, and uh, that, could, that could be a much healthier way to engage in the public square than just finding the newest thing to be outraged about. Well, that's good uh, advice. I appreciate uh, your study. I appreciate your opinion. I'm glad you, <laughs> I'm glad you have one and you were able to share it uh, with us. My um, guest is uh, Paul Miller. He is a uh, professor at Georgetown University, author of a recent study, um, uh, Faith and a Healthy Democracy, co-authored with uh, the ERLC, which you can find at erlc.com and uh, the Fetzer Institute. He's also the author of American Power and the Liberal Order, a conservative international grand strategy uh, published in 2016 by Georgetown University Press. You can also read him at ProvidenceMag.com as he is a speaker, um, a writer and speaker there. Uh, so Paul, it's been great to talk with you and thank you for being on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.